Hello and welcome back to the Replatform podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, it's uh, myself, James, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Paul Rogers. How's it going, Paul? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. Uh, you're having a quiet period at the moment as well, aren't you? How's work? Yeah, struggling. Um, yeah, gradually getting through it. It just feels like everyone's kind of launching. Or like, yeah, I guess this is probably like the biggest six to eight weeks ever for replatforming. So yeah, just kind of getting through projects really. Excellent. So that leads us into the topic today quite nicely, which is we're focusing on the topic of being ruthless of UAT planning and testing. So user acceptance testing, a lot of people listening will know what it is, have gone through it. Others, they might be new to it. They might have heard of it, but not actually gone through the process themselves. And it's an area in replatforming projects that often gets kind of shoehorned in at the last minute rather than you know, structurally planned in advance. And doing it the, the former way creates all sorts of pressures and issues for e-commerce teams if UAT isn't rigorously planned, properly structured. Um, and both of us have been through this quite a lot, probably seen it done to varying degrees of success and quality. So the aim of today's uh, uh, session is just to have a chat about what UAT uh, planning should be, what does good UAT look like, how can you, um, you know, uh, structure your process sensibly what are some of the key risks and issues we see uh does that frame it properly Paul? am i just rambling no i think yeah absolutely yeah i think that's it really yeah and some really good questions to go through excellent so um we're going to do the usual like chuckle brother setup of to me to you with question and answer so i'm going to kick off with um the the first the primary question for me is and it starts from the premise that Often UAT environments are not as clean and performant as they should be. And you, you get to a site where you look at, you know, the hell's going on here? It's all over the place. Why is it not working properly? So what I'd like to, to hear from you is, is based on the experience of all these projects you've worked on across different platforms, different agencies, different clients. What, what should e-commerce teams be thinking about and demanding from their tech partners in terms of uh, UAT environment provision? Yeah, so I guess um, this does differ per platform quite a lot, actually. And I guess like you're going to have different environment or different types of environments with different agencies as well. People tend to have different preferences in terms of like kind of production environments, close to live environments, UAT testing. Like there's various different kind of uh, forms of environments that you might have that kind of, and then it would vary depending on which one ended up in as a production environment once you actually come to launch. And I get like. Yeah, particularly with like the SaaS platforms where you have kind of, if you do have kind of development environments or um, kind of UAT, UAT environments, they're unlikely to be quite as close to the production environment um, because of kind of they're essentially completely independent and you've got different kind of accounts with different apps and technology partners and all that kind of stuff. But I guess really it's just a case of creating an environment that is as close as possible to what is ultimately going to go live and just getting it as ready as humanly possible and kind of, you know, integrating with production uh, environments from like with the different systems and kind of getting all of the third parties in production mode um, and just being able, I guess, to do proper end to end testing. Um, yeah. Across that environment. And I think actually just to add to that, one other thing I would say is just that, I mean, my biggest bug uh, working with different development agencies is when they haven't done enough testing. So ideally kind of in the discovery, you would kind of map out 
um, kind of a base list of kind of device browser screen resolution um, um, kind of focuses or um, yeah kind of a base list and then you they would be testing against that as well and obviously they probably wouldn't have the same level of detail in their test scripts that you would have internally um, but still there should be some level of testing uh, uh, both uh, development level and then um, kind of uh, account management or project management level and then or via testing teams um, and then on to the client to then do more detailed kind of end-to-end -end testing. Yeah, I think I think something that's often overlooked in discussions up front is is performance levels of the UAT environment expectations set in. I've seen it where client teams have been let loose on UAT and the site is a bit slow and it doesn't work uh, as fast as people expect and therefore people start thinking, oh God, our, our website is going to be really slow. It's not what we, we were paying for. And having to set expectations about the limitations of a UAT environment based on how it's technically set up and how it's being hosted and on the issues you get around access and logins and what that means to act to properly access it to view it in the browser and do you need to do it in incognito mode versus standard browser because of any elements with like browser gashing cookies etc there's there's all sorts of discussions i think e-commerce teams need to have with their technical provider to understand what the process is for their teams to access it and any limitations that they need to flag in advance so that people are testing properly rather than feeding back on things that aren't bugs and issues but are just products of being within a UAT environment. Yeah absolutely and I think there's, there's always going to be nuances but I guess where possible you at least want kind of the, the core like the theme um, to be I, I guess identical to um, a production environment um, yeah third parties kind of product catalog um, payment modules everything else I think with the performance one that that's always an issue and I feel like you you always have the response of um, you know when we when this becomes a production environment it will get faster and you know things like the um, the code will be refactored and before it goes live and kind of different third parties will be enabled and caching will be set up properly and everything else but yeah it does and also like yeah maybe the server hasn't been configured properly but yeah it does feel like um that's always an issue and then it's only ever like semi-fixed when you actually do go into production um so yeah i guess that's a conversation to i agree like that's better to be had earlier on um and then kind of expectations around performance are kind of set all the way through the project and then um there's like a better understanding at uat at the point of uat because that does seem to be when those issues come up yeah definitely the, the theme piece is critical like the, the front end has got to look like the site the user is expected whether it's a business yeah. user or whatever whether it's a content team or merchandising team it, it can't just be a mess that's functionally correct but visually inaccurate because otherwise you can't validate that the the site is functioning correctly and it's got to be linked into the back-end system so that changes made in the back-end can be validated on the front end and vice versa so yeah I think that's the critical side uh, in terms of um, getting teams ready you know depending on the size of the project you could just have a very small internal team doing it or you could have loads of third parties like you know SEO agencies who need access to analytics people who need access to validate data layers. what is your recommendation on how you brief internal and external teams like what do they need to know and why yeah so I guess I try to get a lot of that stuff particularly those two areas analytics and SEO um, done earlier in the project but then I'd still get them involved in the UAT phase because um, I tried to get any third parties to sign stuff off I guess at the same point 
Um, but yeah, so at least the core aspects of SEO, so data migration, redirects, um, yeah, kind of any basic configuration kind of, um, yeah, stuff like that I would have done earlier on. And then I guess UAT, um, it would just be a case of going through and doing final sign off. And like uh, one of the things that you, that can add complications to UAT, I found is international setups because often depend again dependent on the platform and how the agency is kind of like building out the site often some of the international pieces um particularly if you're kind of syncing across different stores and there's not like a multi-store architecture would come quite late in the project and that's something that can be quite or like i guess can impact uh uat if you don't have if you're not able to do end-to-end testing across every single store and like certain things aren't configured across those different stores and that's one where um i guess usually uat would be a point where i would expect all of the stores to be ready for testing and then that would be the point where something like treflang might be tested or you know things like i don't know if there's any nuances of like structured data or um metadata or whatever else um or content across different international stores so i guess there would always be a level of input from like an seo agency um and i guess integration testing would be another one um so yeah so you would usually have like a set of test scripts for integrations and like there'd be different stakeholders involved in that and like finance and it and um even customer services and various other uh people um, and I guess I, that would be something that I would usually roll into UAT um, or you'd kind of have to roll into UIT, I guess, and as part of the end-to-end order testing. Um, yeah, and then I guess if it's possible to test something pre-UAT and get something kind of close to sign-off, um, I would uh, try and do that. But ultimately, I guess, usually at the end of UAT, you're kind of signing the site off. So you kind of have to have all third parties involved to a certain extent. It's just kind of if you can get the bulk of any of their testing done earlier. And how do you approach it internally? So yeah, the thing yeah. that I've experienced a lot is, is that just saying to people, right, the UAT site's ready. Can you go and test, please? Can you like merchandise? Can you test that you can, you can manage the PLP how you want and change sorters? is not enough there needs to be a really prescriptive process for, for controlling what people are doing and when and how they're feeding back so how do you get internal teams aligned and doing something that, that is actually providing useful outcomes rather than just a load of noise that you can't do anything with yeah so i guess there's a few different aspects to testing so i mean one of the big things going into uat is getting a really detailed set of test scripts um built out and really covering off kind of all aspects of the front end like everything um end to end like even yeah things like wish list um things like i don't know random kind of bits of content like size guides everything else so literally testing everything all the way through to uh testing different types of orders um etc so all aspects of the front end and then you would have your kind of as i mentioned before so that kind of like base list of um ideally physical devices browsers screen resolutions based on uh traffic uh sales etc um and then you would give different people different responsibility for different combinations um and then you would get them working through those um test scripts and then the same principle would apply from a back-end perspective in terms of kind of testing things like product management order management 
um, et cetera. Um, and then the same principle for different stakeholders for integrations. Um, so kind of people testing things like handling of, I don't know, like, like different um, kind of discounts and line items from a kind of tax and shipping perspective and loyalty and international orders and refunds and all of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So again, you'd have like a, a kind of set of test scripts and then you'd uh, allocate different responsibilities to different people. And then the same with SEO and then the other aspect of UAT, which I'm, which I'm like obsessed with, I guess, or have become obsessed with. And I think everyone is obsessed with is essentially having like the initial kind of functional spec or tech spec um, and the kind of signed off designs and just going through line by line and just making sure that everything's been built in. Cause there's always something like, gift messaging or something that's kind of missed off and it's just making sure that you've kind of got everything um covered and then i guess you would out of all of that work you would just need to split out responsibility across those different areas yeah definitely I, the things that i've noticed in the last few projects i worked on is is the importance of tying up uh, or aligning the people in the business who are more thinking about front end versus those who are more thinking about back end and doing proper end to end process flow testing, which can be a real challenge if people don't know their processes or haven't mapped them out. But a good example is orders. Is is I'm going through a project at the moment where there's a new payment provider and we had to really nail down the fact that there's gaps in our UAT thinking around. We're testing the front ends across devices. You can place orders. You can use different payment methods. You can place for one item, multiple items. Yes, it's appearing in the back end, but is payment capture happening? So not not just is is the e-commerce system seeing it, but is the is the payment gateway actually capturing the funds? Are those funds being received by the client? Therefore, have we mitigated any risk that we might be taking orders and dispatching them, but we actually haven't captured the funds for it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's loads of little things like that. I had a client that moved... Um, payment gateway uh recently and there's so many little things to test particularly across things like um fraud in different countries where you're not using 3d secure and like all of that side of things and we had different kind of solutions working um across fraud um yeah and, the, and like international payment methods like yeah var various different um considerations on that side um yeah, so I think, I mean, really, I think it's just a case of like really mapping out the responsibilities and getting really detailed test scripts um, kind of outlined that cover off every aspect of the front end, back end integrations in particular. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much the key and then just splitting out responsibility. And as I say, I think um, having physical devices can be really useful because I mean, we use Sizzy and browser stack a lot, but um, they never, or we've found that firstly, they miss a lot of versions of different browsers and things like that, that can actually be really like for certain types of retailers can be really important. And secondly, like you can't really replicate physical devices. A lot of the time, there's always like little things um, that pop up that we're then able to replicate across other devices and yeah i think um where possible having kind of those physical devices can make a massive difference yeah definitely and um really important to get people testing across different devices so that the tendency is you're sat at sat at well not not at the moment you're sat at home rather than at work generally but um yeah you're you're at home on your desktop or your laptop and that's where you'll do your test or you're doing it on your phone because that's what you're used to 
you know, you're you're using that as your secondary device while you're up typing emails in on your laptop, as yeah. opposed to doing it cross device, cross browser. I think that that's a real critical piece. The other bit that I think adds massive value is there's bias in all of us humans. And if we look at something for too long, we see what we want to see rather than yeah. uh, objectively evaluating whether it's what we should see or not. So sometimes tests can be passed or failed in, inaccurately. And having a third party testing specialist, this is dependent on budget, obviously, because it does cost money, um, alongside your internal team could be a really useful way of, of finding gaps that you haven't covered internally. I've, my client at the moment is doing this. They're using a third party called Zunu and they've been really, really useful in putting much more detailed structured test results back that an internal team will never get to that level. And some of it is, well, actually, no, that's a content issue. Great. We'll just, those aren't valid cards. We'll fix the content gaps. But some of the stuff has come up that, that none of the business team has noticed. So it's been really useful. Yeah, we had, we had a client use them as well, actually, and they were really good. And um, I think one of the things that I guess you end up with different levels of testing and like, there's almost like testing. So like we, we're doing a project at the moment and it's like there's a lot of complexity in the front end and in theme logic, which essentially like dictates purchasing options and like different attributes being visible on the front end. And essentially like we've had people like them testing and they've pulled out so much stuff that we, yeah, as you say, we're way too close to the project and we definitely wouldn't have, um, uh, kind of picked up and there's like loads of and they, they also just they do it day in day out and they're just generally kind of better at that level of testing and then there's things from a business logic perspective that we've then had to do because they probably wouldn't pick it up or like even if we do kind of and we in this case we did build out really detailed uh, test scripts but it's there's just so much complexity that it's just probably not worth it and like there's a level that then needs to be done by the client but um, I actually had a client that completely outsourced all testing to them and they did a really good job i actually think they i've worked with other people doing testing i think they were probably the best i've seen you know having specialists definitely helps yeah. um so how do you approach writing test plans and scripts right do you do that do you use specialist test managers so how do you typically uh, cut that up in a project so to be honest i'm um I guess, so we've got like a bit of a template we would usually use, uh, which is kind of base commerce functionality. And then we like overlay the initial spec um, on top of it and, um, and just then go through line item by line item through like the front end in particular and then the back end and like try to factor in like platform specific stuff, which is quite important. Um, yeah, and I think that's usually quite a good starting point. I mean, if you've... Um, if you've never uh, created a test script before and you're kind of new to testing, I'd try and find like a base spec um, somewhere, um, either from your agency. A lot of agencies would have kind of test scripts they'd give to a client and then you'd kind of build on top of it or that I'm sure there are examples online. Um, and then I would just add to it based on just go through the site, go through the spec, go through the design to just make sure every kind of little piece is factored in. Um, and then start mapping out. So either you've already got that list of kind of key device screen resolution browser combinations, um, or um, you then build that out and then you just divide out and then map out par um, yeah, pass or fail, essentially. So that, that would be my um, kind of starting point. And I guess the only other addition to that is integrations, but ideally that would kind of, the core stuff would again be covered in um, 
the test script and if not again i think there's a lot online and it's just a case of like mapping out you know how you're doing things how you're handling things like discounts bundles um yeah any kind of nuances with products orders customers um as part of the integrations um yeah and just kind of building out from there and do you where do you normally keep the scripts do you like use google sheets so that they can be easily shared or do you uh, have scripts put into like um uh, other collaboration tools to give people access to because one of the things that i've i've realized over time is is the absolute folly of giving people copies of scripts which they then fill out and send back to you and having to amalgamate and deduplicate versus having a centralized repository of all information with properly controlled i don't know i do it in a google sheets but locked down for permissions properly controlled values for different fields so that you don't get junk put in and people have to put the the results and information you need so that you can then quickly filter and categorize like how, how do you do it yeah so i mean ours aren't particularly user friendly to be perfectly honest and one thing i would also say is i'm not like i've built these out over time and i think our scripts are detailed but i think they could probably be better in fact they could definitely be better and like ours are just pretty long detailed quite specific um spreadsheets essentially but that being said i think and like these days i'm sure someone showed me a tool recently um which looked pretty cool and it's just like a bit more interactive and like it was a bit more geared around like um kind of making it obvious what you're testing um and i'm sure there's a better way and i don't know if you've seen anything um anything else like that because i completely agree and like particularly if someone's never done this before and then they've kind of just suddenly they can suddenly see like a list of i don't know 200 line items that they need to go and test on the front end um and even when it's explained properly it's still quite daunting so i don't know i feel like there must be a better way but i just don't know that <laughs> yeah i'm not going to uh, profess to be a test expert i'm not at all and it requires a real specific skill and what i tend to do is fill gaps in projects where people don't have test managers and they don't have the money or resource to bring them in yeah. and making sure that we lease it. i mean i know that my test test matrices and scripts are not perfect i know it full well um i've worked with some phenomenal like test test managers who have the absolute detail and control um i'd say that I've, I've, I've not gone wrong with google sheets if they're properly structured they're segmented you have a matrix that defines all of your i mean one project uh, i've got them at 278 test tasks each one has an id each one has a requirement and each one has a success criteria and we assign stakeholders across that grid so not you don't expect everyone to do everything but one person might have four 20 tasks one person might have 30 tasks but they know what their tasks are yeah. then the task id each person goes into the sheet we have set columns with um data validation to restrict what can be entered into key columns and that person has to follow the structure putting the test id the results the browser da, 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 da which enables filtering of camera right, i only want to see what what jane has done today or john and i only want to look at test id 246 and it, that way gives me control without me being a proper test manager who's got a more scientific approach to it yeah absolutely yeah yeah and i think um i think that's probably the key the management so i don't so i tend to do quite a bit of testing actually um, but my colleague's a lot better than i am and she's essentially come from like a big company where she was like a product owner and i think she's kind of just ended up inheriting all the testing around deployment 
Um, and she's been pretty good for like building out our uh, uh, kind of documents and everything else. And I actually quite like testing, to be fair. Um, but yeah, I think I think the thing actually, to be fair, if I was the thing where I think I've historically been pretty weak, actually, is um, is really, I guess, making it easy for everyone internally, because I would usually split out. So like the last launch I did, I probably split out. Um, 250 line items of testing across front end and back end across five people but and, and we just split it out but i don't think i think i could have made it a bit more easier and uh, and just kind of got people bought into certain areas and things like that and it was split out based on their job role essentially but uh, and the devices they essentially had at hand because this was during lockdown as well it's a bit of an issue um and then we had to like just buy additional devices and yeah kind of find people in the business of additional devices and things like that um but yeah i think that whole piece around making it easy for the person testing and yeah just keeping them quite focused is something that i don't think i've done particularly well in the past and i think that's something I, that yeah definitely we could do better and i think is important yeah i agree and i i know full well that i can do better on it as well and and actually what every single project i do i learn more about some of the gaps in thinking and you you look at it and you go like for example, I sent you earlier on a project where um, we've got gaps in our test scripts around the in-store um, customer experience and order process because orders are being put in through a store mode front end of the website. Um, so actually, that's got to be tested. It's not just a question of have you tested payments and can payments be made, but actually, is that store mode um, process working or are any bugs in that would impede the store stuff? And it's simple things like that where actually you get simple oversights when you don't have a internal stakeholder who's the, the owner for that. Um, but it's the fun. Uh, I think the most important thing is, is having, having a structure, having plans and scripts, but not being arrogant enough to think you've got it all covered. And if somebody flags something you think needs testing, put it in there and add it to the uh, criteria. Yeah, and I think you just uh, mentioned something there that like, leads me on to like, another point. Um, so I guess... Um, I've worked with like I've done a small part of a big project in the past and there's been like really strong testing teams and external testers and everything else involved in the project but you still never I don't think you'll ever find every bug and I think that's the other thing is you kind of just got you need to obviously you need to work towards getting it to like the best possible place it can be to go live but I also think like in most cases you just need like particularly people in management just need to understand that when you go live um there's always going to be bugs and it's just then a case to getting getting them fixed as soon as possible and actually often when i've worked on projects the best way to find bugs is to just get the site live and obviously yeah. you want to avoid um launching with bugs but i think I mean, I got to a point recently on a project where we were just constant, like we were doing too much UAT and everyone was quite lenient around just extending UAT. And in the end, we, we got it live and then there were some bugs and we got them fixed. And I think you've just got to try it ultimately, particularly if you're not launching in a peak and everything else, like you've just got to try and get it live, get as much feedback as possible from as many people, like really kind of, yeah, get a good process. Um, post-launch and through launch um get feedback forms on the site and everything else and i think as, as much as uat is hugely important um you just need to understand as well that there, there will still be bugs even if you go through like the best possible uat yes but yeah 100 percent. i think it's a really important takeaway for people is 
is don't obsess about perfection because it doesn't exist with technology and people. And, and it's one of the hardest things as someone like me, who's got a complete OCD issue in life. He wants everything perfect and I want it looking amazing. And when I see something that I know isn't perfect UX and could be improved, like a the transition between add to wish list and wish list for a, you know, a guest user who has to register, you have to sometimes take a step back and go, right, that impacts what, 6% of users. That is not a blocker for launch. You can live with that. It works functionally. It's not beautiful. Deal with it. And which leads me on to my next question, which for me is the, is the absolute crunch one on this episode is how do you prioritize an issue and how do you define what is in your go, no go checklist for launch? Because you, if you can't fix everything, that's the given. How do you define what you can't allow to go live and what you can live with until you fix in a backlog? Yeah, so I think this is a really good question. And we've, we've done an episode before where we had a really good discussion on this. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but I think um, essentially like real priorities, it depends on like there's various like little variables, like a lot of them would be commercial, I guess, in terms of what the impact might be of going live with bugs. Um, but I think overall, if you're not going into some kind of peak, and if you've guaranteed resource from the development agency and you know they're going to pick things up as soon as you go live, I would say like blockers would be anything payment related, um, any, anything that prevents someone from checking out basically, um, and anything that could, law, that could cause lasting damage from an SEO perspective or anything else. And that you, as long as you have kind of visibility of things, so maybe like some level of analytics or reporting and, and integration, as long as they're covered, I think most other kind of bugs, and as long as it's not having a big impact on customer experience, the customer experience, um, I think, and as long as there's not too, much, too many of them or too much work, I, I think leave it till post-launch. Um, but I do think those first bits are key. Um, guaranteeing resource and just yeah i guess knowing that things are going to be fixed quickly yeah i think i think that's right the way i look at it it's like the it's it's similar to like a maslow's hierarchy thing where you have a, a an invert uh, you have a pyramid from base upwards of the things which are critical at the base and up to the do you know what yes we would in an ideal perfectionist world have all of this done for launch but we can go live without it and the bottom for me is the uh, legality and compliance stuff. It's yeah, if you go live without this, you could get fined, <laughs> you could get arrested, you could do something bad like you know contravening GDPR, PCI, all of that stuff. You know breaking core accessibility. Then the layer above that is your your ability yet yeah, to 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 basically uh, transact. If anything is impeding transaction across a device, a payment method, whatever it might be, that's a flaw then it's the core e-commerce functionality. Does it work? Can the customer use it? If the customer can't use it, you either turn it off for launch or you fix it. Um, good examples like wishlist. If the wishlist flow isn't right and it's confusing for the customer or it doesn't work properly on a, a mobile device, for example, which is critical now, given that it's, unless you've got a site that's used lose list massively, you have a choice to turn that off until you fix it and go live or accept, you know, so it's, it's that kind of conversation right the way up to like the cosmetic stuff like, okay, well, my hover over interaction on the mini bag on a desktop, it doesn't quite look as pixel perfect as I like and the alignment's slightly out. Do I stop launch for that? Arguably no. So I, I think if, as long as you have criteria defined, 
It's when you get into testing and nobody has any criteria and then it's a bun fight for that's a P1. No, it's not. It's a P3. No, it's not. It's got to be there for launch. And you just end up in a never decreasing circle of chaos. So there has to be a criteria defined where you can objectively go back and say, does it fit into the P1, 2, 3 tasks? Yeah. And then that takes some of the emotion out of the decision. Yeah, I agree. And I guess the only other thing um, that I've done recently, and it kind of happened accidentally, I guess, but is giving one person responsibility for defining that priority. And essentially the person on the project that I'm thinking of um, was responsible for trade and essentially just making sure that the site was trading well and um, kind of the site's performing as expected um, and also responsible for kind of, yeah, acquisition as well. Um, and they ended up doing the prioritization because as I think you mentioned in the last time we discussed this, um, you know, marketing, design, people with kind of some input around creative and the front end um, will have very different priorities to that type of person. And I guess, um, yeah, you need someone that's kind of responsible for, yeah, defining those priorities post-launch. Um, and who, who in your mind should be the person who approves um, UAT to say, yes, it's passed, it can go live? Yeah, I guess that's an interesting one. So, I mean, probably it's varied for me, but probably the most senior e-com figure and then they would get sign off from people that are maybe above them. So if it's a head of e-com, an e-com director, um, and then sometimes it would be more of a combination between like an e-com manager and the head of e-com because the e-com manager has been a bit closer. Um, and I guess, yeah, or I mean, the other one that you could have is like, I guess it depends who's ultimately responsible for the performance of the site. Um, but yeah, I would say usually from my experience, it's kind of like a more senior e-com figure with input from maybe the other people that are responsible for the performance of the site. And then with sign off from people above them. Yeah, I think, I think making people responsible for the areas of the business. So I'm doing it in the project at the moment where the, the customer service team own the CX element. So things like the customer service contact pages, um, the elements are that they'll be doing on a day-to-day -day basis like yes the back end yeah. um, access orders edit orders place orders so the the um lead project lead which in this case is me has overall oversight to to validate that yes it is right but uh, a functional responsibility so merchandisers have to make sure that they can in the back end do the merchandising on plp grids and they can manage the cross and upsells on pdps etc i find that's really good because if people know they've got responsibility which takes the commercial lead you know the director making people aware they have responsibility they have more stake in doing the uat to a greater level of detail if they think it's if they think it's just them going on checking a site to help often the level of detail isn't there and you get poor quality uat results yeah so, um, it's not meant to be accountability is not about blame it's just about making people take more ownership and be more vested in the process so you get a better quality output yeah 100 percent. i think pre that ultimate sign off um i would have expected kind of like i guess finance it marketing at the very least to have kind of done their kind of department level sign or like their level of sign off there. and then like the kind of project i don't know i guess to then ultimately sign it off yeah Exactly. Uh, it leads me on to one final question I've got on this whole UAT world is how do you approach the, the launch countdown? So we talked about UAT, we talked about sign off. 
once UAT testing has been signed off and people said, yeah, we're happy, how do you then take that into a launch countdown? What do you next do in a project for a client? Yeah, so I guess, I mean, there's going to be a series of tasks that need to be done on different sides to kind of get the site ready, I guess. Um, so things like, yeah, putting uh, integrations, making sure that all aspects of integrations are in production mode, making sure that the same principle with like payments and various other things, like all of that kind of stuff. You'd have like a launch plan um, and you'd have responsibilities for those launch, uh, those launch items. You'd probably have a rollback plan. Um, yeah, and then you just, I guess, just make sure that everything, like you do a final set of kind of uh, tests the day before launch maybe, um, and then just have that kind of launch readiness slash launch plan um, ready to go for the day of launch. Yeah, do you typically use a standard set of um, uh, tasks that, that you've created um, based on your experience, or do you normally rely on the technical partner to do this? No, no. So yeah, we've got, uh, so um, it varies. So sometimes we own it, sometimes the agency own it. I personally obviously prefer the agency owning it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I guess like, yeah, there's a standard set of tasks. The only thing is it differs massively platform by platform. And like, you know, if you're migrating from M1 to M2 and you're, you know, I guess like you've depended on how you're migrating the data and everything else, you might end up with a lot uh, you might end up with a lot more or less tasks on that side and alter, and like the equivalent if you're launching on Shopify, like the difference of a launch day on Shopify to Magento, for example, is like completely chalk and cheese. Like with Shopify, you switch the DNS and if the site's in a good place, you're kind of, you're, you're there, you're done. Um, whereas Magento is usually very different and there's different approaches, but you can end up with a lot of downtime or um, yeah, there's a lot more to think about than just the DNS. And I guess that changes um, with all of the different platforms and there's kind of pros and cons to that. Um, but yeah, I guess like overall, we've got like a bit of a standardized kind of launch checklist, but it does differ per platform and per project. And that international piece is another part of that as well, which often yeah. adds a lot more complexity. I'd be, I'd, you know, I'd really be clean off the back of this to actually uh, exchange views on those checklists and have a look at what your standard one is, because I guarantee there's some stuff in there that I can, uh, I can beg, steal, and borrow in uh, in my project. So yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tap you up shamelessly after this uh, um, for that checklist. Um, cool. So that's that's for me. That's covered the key questions around UAT. Hopefully, people will get from this episode the fact that. Yes, everyone knows you've got to do UAT, but you've got to have a proper structure to it. You need somebody to take responsibility. You need to have clear criteria for defining what you're testing and why and what success looks like and what you're going to do with the outcomes of those tests and how you're going to prioritise tasks so that you have a clear vision of what needs to happen for live. I mean, those would be my key takeaways. How would you sum it up or what would you um, recommend people take away from this episode? Yeah, I guess it's just doing as much preparation as possible, like managing expectations through a project as much as possible, particularly when it comes to that last go live phase. And like, I guess just making sure that everyone's aware that there are going to be different types of bugs and everything else. Doing research on the platform as well can be quite useful because um, particularly like, yeah, I guess there's common bugs in different platforms that can impact launches and everything else. That's usually quite good. Lean on the SI, get their experience as well. Um, yeah, and just get kind of, I guess, as many people involved from a testing perspective as possible. Um, yeah, and just make sure you can allocate a lot of time um, through that UAT phase. Yeah, I think that's a really nice summary. So 
that brings us to the end of this episode on the criticality of UAT for replatforming. Thanks, as always, for people listening in. If you think this would be interest to somebody else you know, please do share it. Uh, we'd, we're more than happy for you to, to uh, spread the love of the Replatform podcast. And as always, any questions or even if you've got any recommendations and advice for us, um, please do get in, in contact. We don't profess to be experts and everything, so we're always happy to listen to other people who've got um, uh, expert advice. Uh, so thanks again. and Have a good evening, Paul. I'll catch up with you soon, mate. Right. Thanks.